Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. So we continue our discussion today on the concept of holiness and walking that out. And this is the difficult part. This is the part where it's life application. This is the part where I either choose to do it or I don't choose to do it. And you know, we looked at last week in Hebrews chapter 12. If you can go ahead and turn your scripture to Hebrews chapter 12, that's where we're going to begin this morning in verse 12 of chapter 12. But last week we were talking about the high idea of discipline, not necessarily our discipline to others, but God's God's discipline to us and what that looks like. And, you know, it's just, it's difficult. It's a difficult message to talk about discipline, but it's a difficult message to talk about living out and walking out holiness. You know, it's fun to talk about holiness when it's God on the throne, high and lifted up, imagining in our thought processes what it looks like to be gathered around the throne, imagining what those seraphim look like, imagining the saints that have gone before us, imagining the 24 elders gathered around the throne, imagining the thunder and the lightning and the shaking of the earth all around the throne room of God. That's fun to imagine. might be difficult to hear also, but then looking at Leviticus, Leviticus 19.2 and trying to walk that out every single day where God gives us command to be holy because he's holy. Be holy because I, Jehovah, your Elohim, am holy. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so now for th- this is the third week where we're actually walking this out, talking this out, trying to put hands and feet to a very difficult subject of living the holy lifestyle and what that looks for us as Christ followers. So let's begin today, Hebrews chapter 12, reading verses 12 through 17. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Or in other words, what is lame will not be pulled out of joint, but to be healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all people and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see God or see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach us today the words that you wrote down so many years ago. What a difficult subject that is. And if we continue the idea, so we looked at last week about discipline, and then he continues right now, and he says, the author says, to weaken or to strengthen your weak arms and weak knees, to bring strength to them. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Have you ever had an accident or had some type of debilitating issue in your, in your life, in your physical body that required physical healing, that required ongoing physical healing? We're not talking about, hey, I woke up this morning with a sore shoulder from the way that I slept, and guess what? By tomorrow or the day after, I'll work it back out. Or my knee's kind of tired, or I pulled a muscle because I was exercising, having some fun, and after a day or two, it's going to be healed. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, first of all, in the spiritual realm, not in the physical realm, but the author is associating things that we understand in the physical realm to help us grasp what we need to do in the spiritual realm. In the spiritual realm, we need to strengthen the weaknesses in our bodies. In order to strengthen what is weak in our body, we have to first acknowledge that we have weaknesses in our spiritual body in our spiritual state. They need to be addressed and they need to be exercised. They need to be strengthened. And it's not a, hey, I woke up this morning with a sore shoulder, I can stretch it out type of strengthening. This is weakness that needs to be strengthened. The way that we would have to strengthen a rotator cuff that has had to be surgically healed 
and put back into shape. Or maybe I've had an issue in my arm and now I have to strengthen it because of the issue, the brokenness. For months and months, now the, the muscles are weak and it needs to be strengthened. So you're talking about physical therapy. We have some PT people that actually are in this room today and I've hung around some of those folks and they can tell you that physical therapy is not a one and done type of thing. It's ongoing. It takes weeks and months and sometimes many extended months to bring back strength into areas of the body that have been broken and hurt and healed. In the spiritual realm, we have to acknowledge that this type of exercise is painful to begin with. And it takes time. And it takes a resolute mind not to give up. This line that we see in Hebrews is not original to the author. The author is actually quoting Scripture found in Isaiah chapter 35. I'm going to read that to you really quick. Isaiah 35 verse 3 and 4 says this, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And that is part of the struggle that as Christ followers, we don't acknowledge sometimes. We pretend that we have God on our side, but internally we don't believe it and we don't act that way. Yet you see the, the instructions right here in Isaiah expounded what the author of Hebrews was writing. You need to, we need to, I need to strengthen my hands. Lift the weights physically, lift the weights spiritually in order to bring strength to my physical and my spiritual body. I need to strengthen the weak knees, the weak elbows, the weak joints. I need to purposefully acknowledge and say, this is an area that I'm struggling with and I have to put into practice that area so that I can strengthen it. So think about that from any perspective in your spiritual walk. What are the spiritual areas in your life that you struggle with? Maybe you don't believe that God can heal. Maybe you don't believe that this is still relevant today. What are the issues in your heart and your life on a spiritual realm that need to be exercised? But look at what the truth of Scripture says here. Be strong and do not fear. Why? Because Daddy King's on my side. Daddy King is with me. We believe the Scripture. We say it out loud. If God is for me, who can be against me? We can say those things out loud, but walking them out, living them out, believing them as a lifestyle, I think we challenge ourselves and we struggle there on a regular basis. Look at the way that we live our lives. Look at the culture that we're in. We don't live this type of lifestyle in our culture. We don't live this type of lifestyle within our church. We have to put on this idea every single moment of every single day of strengthening what is weak within me. And then the promise is that God is on our side. Do you believe that God is on your side? Not because the preacher says it, not because the Sunday school teacher said it, not because I've been in church my whole life and I know that's the Christian thing to do, that's the right thing to say, that's the right thing to believe. You may believe it here, but do you believe it here that God is for you? Do you believe it here that God will save you? Do you believe it here that God is on your side? Because if we do, this should be revolutionary. If we do believe that, it should change the way that we live our lives, the way we have conversation with other people, the things that I do with my life. If I believe that God is for me, that God is on my side, that God is the strength, that God is my foundation? That when those dev demonic, devilish thoughts come in my mind, I take them captive and said, no, that's not of God. I am not following that train of thought. I'm not following that lifestyle. I'm not going to do that. Look at the next thing that the author of Hebrews says. In chapter 12, verse 13, the author says, Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, or that the lame, what is lame, may not be pulled out of joint. Think about that for just a moment. Have you ever had a physical ailment where you had a muscle or a joint that was 
dismembered, that was pulled apart, that was separated. Again, we're not talking about, oh, I pulled a muscle because I, I stretched too much. We're talking about something that's been dislocated. The pain that is associated with that. And the author says to make level paths so that what has been pulled apart, what has been separated, what has been broken, what has been taken out of joint has time to heal. Now think about technology today. Technology today says if I want to get upstairs, I can go to the elevator. I don't have to go up those steps. 2,000 years ago, we did not have technology like we have today. 4,000 years ago to make level paths. How difficult was it 4,000, 3,000, 2,000 years ago to make level paths? It wasn't like it is today where we just go rent a bulldozer, rent a skid loader, rent a backhoe, and just skim off the area and make it flat so that we can build whatever we need to build or make the road so that it's flat and easy to travel on. Life was full of ups and downs and steps and creeks and things that you had to wade through. And honestly, on a normal day, not that big a deal. may wind me just a little bit to go up and down that hill five times, but honestly, not that big a deal until I have a piece of my body that has been pulled and dislocated and out of joint. Imagine traveling up and down that hill that is necessity for you every single day, now with a dislocated hip or a knee that's been dislocated and out of joint, or ailments in the body that keep you from being able to walk normally. The instruction is to make flat paths. Why? Because it's a whole lot easier if something's dislocated and out of joint to walk on a flat level plane than it is to go up and down steps and hills and valleys, isn't it? A whole lot easier. So what does that look like in our life? Well, the author here, this was not an original thought for the author also. The author actually quotes Proverbs chapter 4. Let me read that to you. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 through 27 says this, My son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart. For it is is the wellspring of life. Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep correct, corrupt talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet and take away, take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. So we see this as an ongoing theme for what the author is writing out about holiness. What is required? Level paths. Level paths for your mind, level paths for your physical body, level paths for your emotions. All of which can cause us to stumble in our Christian walk. He says, take captive the thoughts that you're having. Your paths of righteousness. Be thinking on things that really matter. When you look at this here, Guard your heart above all else because it is the wellspring of life. How do I guard my heart? He's not talking about physically guarding our heart, although that is a wise thing to do. He's talking about spiritually guarding our heart because it's the wellspring of life. What we fail to understand and grasp is what comes into our eyes, what comes into our ears, permeates inside of our mind and makes its way down to our heart and becomes a part of who we are. Our hearts can deceive us when it has been trained and equipped in ways of unrighteousness, of degradation, of things that are not Christ-centered. When our heart has been influenced more by the culture than by the Word of God, we have failed at guarding our hearts. That's hard to hear, isn't it? That's hard to, to grasp and take hold of. But he says this is directly proportionate to the way that we live our lives and the infilling of the Holy Spirit of God. When I'm asking for more of God, but I've got so much of the world already in here, God wants to honor that, but He says, well, where are you going to go? Have you got no place for me? 
You're already filled of other things. There's other things that are more important in your heart and your life than I am. And so you can ask in an honest and integrity-based prayer of God, fill me up. I want more. But if we've not actively looked for ways to get rid of the junk in our heart and our life, confessed it as sin, asked God to remove that, where is He going to fill more of Himself in us? There's not an open room, an open place. So be, let your eyes look straight, gaze before you. So be conscious of where your eyes travel and what you watch. Be conscious of what you're listening to. Make the, pla- the path straight. Don't swerve to the right or swerve to the left, but stay focused on the things that really matter in the, art, in the, hot, in the heartbeat of God, in the lifestyle of a Christ follower. How difficult that is in the world that we live in. We're going to talk about that more as we look at more of what the Scripture says here in Hebrews chapter 12. Make level paths for your feet so that what is lame will not be disabled, but rather healed. Verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Let's focus on that word peace for just a moment. Shalom is actually the word that's there. Now, we have taken the word peace and applied it to the word shalom, but they don't actually mean the exact same thing. There's a little bit of difference. So shalom does not mean necessarily peace based on the definition that we have. Our minds have been trained to think of things in a Greek-Roman perspective. The Hebrew perspective that the Scripture is written is more experiential. The Greek and Roman is more logical. So actually, you're looking at two different definitions for the word peace. Now, in ancient Hebrew, this concept of peace was rooted in the word shalom. And it meant several different things. It meant wholeness, completeness, soundness, health, safety, and prosperity, carrying with it the implication of permanence. That's the, that's the heartbeat behind shalom. Now, when you look up peace in the Webster Dictionary, you're going to have two different definitions. One definition is applied to the way of warfare, that type of peace. One deals with cessation of hostilities. So that first definition, cessation of hostilities, is what we typically go to when we think about peace. Peace, peace, I want peace. No more war. Make love, not war. All of these things are are raw, this idea of peace, but peace meaning no more hostility. And so when we look at the definition of peace from that perspective and apply that to what's written in the Scripture, you've got this idea that peace means I'm at peace with each other. I'm not fighting with other people. There's this cessation of hostility between me and my child, my child and my, my parent, my, uh, my next-door neighbor, the person at work, whoever that I'm living with, whoever I'm in community with, whoever my lifestyle is with. Okay? So this, because there's a lack of hostility means that we're at peace. That's not what it's saying when he's saying desire peace, chase after peace, go after peace. He uses the word shalom here. Make every effort to live in shalom. So shalom means, focuses, or the other definition of of Webster says, to focus on a freedom from inner turmoil, better known as peace of mind. That's not the same thing. And so when he pursues shalom, the author is telling us to pursue shalom, pursue a lifestyle of holiness. Pursue this idea that God is complete and in Him is complete completeness. One of the definitions we use to describe God in the Holy Spirit, gifts of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, is love, joy, peace. Peace is that third one. Shalom. The peace of God that dwells within us is not the absence of hostility. It is completeness. It is wholeness within Him. There was a rabbi who passed away a few years ago, but he made an interesting comparison between our idea of peace and shalom from the Hebrew explanation. Rabbi Robert Kahn said this, One can dictate a peace. Shalom is a mutual agreement. Peace is a temporary pact. Shalom is a permanent agreement. Think about the scripture we just read from that perspective of a permanent agreement. He continues, One can make a peace treaty. 
Shalom is a condition of peace. Peace can be negative, as in the absence of commotion. But shalom is positive, as in the presence of serenity. Peace can be partial. Shalom is whole. Peace can be piecemeal. Shalom is complete. Shalom. Permanent agreement. Make every effort to live in shalom with your neighbor. And to be holy. Do you see how these two are combined? So for weeks now, we've talked about this idea of being holy because God's holy. This command that we're commanded to live out. Do you understand that based on this one verse alone, notwithstanding everything else in the scripture, that you cannot live a holy lifestyle without living a lifestyle of shalom? They're combined. You cannot live a holy lifestyle without living a lifestyle of shalom, of peace, of completeness in the God, a Holy Spirit of God. You cannot do it. It cannot be done. They are combined here. Make every effort. Make every effort. Make every effort. They don't want it, so make every effort. They don't need it, so make every effort. They said no, so make every effort. Make every effort is not dependent on what the other person's doing. It's on my heart. Just because they say no, you're not accountable for them saying no. What you're accountable for is living a Christ-like life, pointing them to the cross, pointing them to Jesus, living a lifestyle of holiness and purity. That's what you are accountable to God for. You cannot make the other person say yes or no. You're accountable for the way that you present that, the way that you hold them accountable. This is listed here in just a moment. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You see, we talked about holiness all, this, all these weeks now. They're combined. They must be equated. They must be sewn together on the heartstring of our, uh, of, of our heart. The tapestry of our heart has to be sewn in. Holiness, purity, shalom, the peace that passes understanding, the shalom of God that passes understanding. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and has no bitter root that grows up causing trouble and defile many. Look at that first part. See to it that no one. See to it that no one. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. What is our responsibility in this? Your responsibility is see to it that no one misses the grace of God, that misunderstands the grace of God, that's not walking in holiness and purity. Another way, another word that we can use within the church world to grasp this and walk with it is the word accountability. And we don't like accountability. So I tell the teenagers this on a a regular basis. You cannot hold someone accountable who's not willing to be held accountable. Can't be done. Parents, you cannot hold children accountable after a certain age. You can't hold them accountable if they're not willing to be held accountable. Children, you cannot hold your parents accountable if they're not willing to be held accountable. So we've come up with this idea that parents always right no matter what age the children are. That's not biblical. Parents, just because you, you have a command about you that says, honor your parents, honor your mother and father, just because we have that command given to us in Scripture does not mean that you're always right and you can't be held accountable. You can't be teachable. That's not what it says. You cannot hold your friends accountable who are not willing to be held accountable. You cannot hold your spouse accountable if they are not willing to be held accountable. You can try and try and try and try again. But you have to maintain, as a Christ follower, we must maintain a teachable spirit, which means I am willing to be held accountable. Now, we also have this idea within our Christian culture, within our church cultures, not necessarily this church, but church in general, a church culture that it's the pastor or the lead staff's responsibility to hold the people accountable. And yes, that's true, but it doesn't stop there. You are as accountable to God to hold me accountable for what I, the way that I live my life. Now, whether I receive it or not, you Hold me accountable. I hold you accountable. We all hold each other accountable. That's what this is talking about. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. How do we miss the grace of God? By being in absolute defiance and rebellion. By running away from God. We have created this culture that says church, Christianity, this Christian lifestyle is from 9 to 12 on Sunday mornings. 48 weeks of the year. And that's the extent of it. But that's not biblical. 
The biblical mandate is always living a Christ-like lifestyle, always holding each other accountable and helping us, each other, not miss the grace of God that is beautiful, the grace of God that is full of love, the grace of God that's forgiving, the grace of God that does not exclude based on any issues. The grace of God is for all of mankind. All throughout Scripture, the grace of God is for you and me. And we must hold each other accountable. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So what are the bitter roots that can grow and defile many? We could talk about a multiple one of different ones. But I want to focus just for a moment on the word gossip. There are others that create bitter roots, these bitter roots that, that cause division, that defile many, as the Scripture says. Gossip is one of them. I want to say if we can grasp that, we can understand all of them from the same perspective. What does gossip do? Gossip goes from one mouth to one ear, and then from another mouth to another ear, and then from that mouth to another ear, mouth to ear, mouth to ear, mouth to ear, mouth to ear. And gossip does not build the body of Christ up. What does it do? It defiles. It's a bitter root that does not address things that need to be addressed. It's talking about people, talking about situations instead of dealing with people and dealing with situations. And because of that, it creates this bitter root because it's not sweet. It tastes sweet. Gossip tastes sweet in the moment. Gossip tastes sweet as, as we first start to sink our teeth into it like a, like a beautiful piece of cake. But before long, it sours in our mouth like something disgusting. Because it is disgusting. It defiles us as Christ's followers. It separates us from walking in holiness and purity. And it defiles many. That's what's so bad. It's not like it's just gossip is just focused on me. Dealing with me is a sin issue that I have that doesn't affect everybody else. My gossip defiles everybody else that is around. That, you look at the word that it says. It doesn't say influences. It says defiles. <coughs> Think about that for a minute. So when we do not deal with things that need to be dealt with, when we skirt around the issue, when we pretend, when we don't address things that need to be addressed, when we don't hold each other accountable, and I'm not willing to be held accountable, gossip has this bitter root opportunity to swell up within the body of Christ and defile many. How many stories have you heard? How many churches have you heard about that were split right down the middle because of gossip? We said it was because of the carpet or the paint color or because of this person's indiscretion or this false teaching, whatever. But quite honestly, the majority of the time, if not the vast majority of the time, gossip is one of the most bitter roots within the body of Christ that sows deception Why is that? Think about how the evil one works. The evil one knows that at this time, every single Sunday, this is going on right here in this room. And in churches all around the world for the last 12 hours, depending on what time zone they are in, there are churches that have been meeting around the clock for the last 24 hours. This is not a surprise to the evil one. And what's the evil one's job? What does he want to do? Steal, kill, destroy. He wants to steal you, steal you away from God. He wants to kill you physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And he wants to destroy your witness and destroy your relationship with God. That's what he wants to do to you specifically. What does he want to do to our gathering of believers? He wants to steal our joy. He wants to steal the relationships that we have. He wants to steal God's presence, God's worship, and steal it to become his own. He wants to kill what God is doing in the hearts and the lives of the people that are here. He wants to kill this church, kill the effectiveness that we have in the community and in the world. He wants to destroy our reputation. He wants to destroy what God is doing here. And so the beautiful things, these seeds of life that we see birthing up and taking place, the evil one sees that also and wants to steal it, kill it, and destroy it. And one of the ways that he does that is through gossip. Because it defiles many. Now, if you were to sit and take some notes and think, what are the other bitter roots? What are other examples of bitter roots that I can come up with that defile many? You can come up with some of those as well. 
It's not all inclusive about gossip. That's just where I felt like God wanted it to go this morning. And then look at the next verse. Stay away from those who are sexually immoral. Wow, what does that look like in our world? How can that even be in our scripture anymore? Look at our culture. Our culture is a sexually immoral culture. The very world that we live in, here in our city, is a sexually immoral city. In our state, it's a sexually immoral state. In our, in, in, in our country, it's a sexually immoral culture, country. And in our very world, full of sexual immorality. But it's not unique and new to us here today. This has been going on since the creation of the world. Some of the very first sins you see about in the Old Testament had to do with sexual immorality. It hasn't stopped then, and it's not stopping now. It seems to be progressing now because of media and technology. Between media and technology, our world has become so influenced, our culture has become so influenced, and we target, we say, not target, but we, we think that the target is the young men, and it is. But it's not only them. Because you think about the, the addiction of pornography that is so rampant in our culture today. Be careful how you Google search this, but you can Google search statistics on the number of people that, uh, that, that watch pornography on a regular basis. It's going to blow your mind. And it's as rampant inside the church as it is outside of the church. And it's not just young men. It's men of all ages. And it's not just men. It's almost equal to women. Sexual immorality is all throughout our churches and all throughout our culture. Yet we're commanded by God to be careful what you see, what careful what comes into your mind. And it's not just pornography. It's not just the things that we see on television. You can turn on primetime television and see all sorts of vile degradation that has been publicly promoted. Whether it's not visually, you can't see everything that's really going on. The innuendos of what's going on is prevalent. And we look at that as entertainment and fun. The divorce rate inside the church is as high, if not higher, than outside the church. And if you do the statistics, you'll see that so many marriages are split between two major things. Finances and unfaithfulness. Sexual immorality is an issue within every church body that needs to be addressed. Some more prevalent than others. And I do pray. Maybe, maybe that statistic's not right. Maybe there are some churches out there that have zero issues with sexual immorality. I would, I would thank God if that's the case. But knowing the world, knowing the culture that we live in, and how, how we separate and we hide from these things, it's so prevalent. And yet the instructions in Hebrews is to stay away from sexual immorality. Paul talks about it in, different, in Scripture and says, take every thought captive. Why is that? Because what did Jesus say? If you think lustfully about another person, you've committed adultery within your heart. If you think lustfully in your mind, take your mind, take your thoughts captive because our captive thoughts do not lead us down that road. We acknowledge that we're walking down that road. We take a lasso, we whip that, that daggum thought and we bring it back and we say, no, I'm not going that way. No, I'm not following that path. No, I'm saying no because I desire holiness. And God, I'm struggling with this right now, but I want to be holy. God, I can't take these thoughts captive, but I'm, I'm desiring purity. God, help me in this moment to take these thoughts captive, to find that way out, to remove myself. This is sin. This is wrong. I don't want anything to do with it. Be gone in the name of Jesus. Speak the truth over your heart and your life. Proclaim the truth out loud inside of you. Speak it so that, you're, so, that, so that your vocal cords actually say it and your eardrums hear the truth that I am forgiven, that I am set apart, that I've been sanctified. We talked about sanctification a few weeks ago. This idea that God sanctifies, uh, sanctifies us, but we have a responsibility to sanctify ourselves as well. It's a both and process. It's a both of us giving and taking and being a part of that. God wants to sanctify you. He wants to set you apart. He wants to make you holy. That's the definition of sanctification. He's not going to give us the command in Leviticus 19.2 to be holy as He is holy without giving us a way of being able to do that. That's the sanctification process that He gives us. As I pursue this, how do I know what to do? I stay away from the things the Bible says to stay away from. Like the things that cause bitter roots that are infectious to those that are around me, to sexual immorality. And then He makes one more interesting Comment right here. Look at verse 16. 
See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. So if you do any study in the Old Testament, you know that you get the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the patriarchs. They're the lineage that Jesus came from. They're the lineage that all, uh, all Hebrews, all Jews point back to. Father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But according to the Scripture, we see here that it was not originally intended to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was supposed to be Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But if you read the stories in the Old Testament, you're like, what did Esau do that was so bad? It wasn't like he was a bad guy. It seemed like he was an okay type of guy. He just got the wrong, ear of the, wrong end of the deal. Jacob took advantage of him. Jacob took advantage of his, of his older brother. Remember, they're twins. They don't look the same, so they're fraternal twins. When Esau was born, he was born just a moment or two before Jacob. But according to this, we see that, that Esau, according to Scripture, had a, had a rough life. How much of it was his own doing? Because you look right here in the Scripture, it says, Do not be godless like Esau. But I looked in the Old Testament, it's like, wow, this was godless? He was living a godless life because he sold his birthright for a cup of stew. He was so hungry. Well, that makes sense. He's been out all day. He's been hungry. You ever been hungry? I mean, I've been hungry, hungry before. I, well, I don't know if I'd sell my birthright. I don't know if I'd give away my inheritance because I was so hungry. But that's how hungry he was. No, it wasn't that he was that hungry. It was that he cared that little about his birthright at that moment. I read this quote by J. Vernon McGee who wrote about Esau. I want to read this to you. This is incredible. But in Genesis 25, 34, God records that Esau despised his birthright. As the firstborn son of Isaac, all of the rights of the family contained within the birthright were his. Esau was to be in contact with God. He was to be the priest of his family. He was to be the man who had a covenant from God. Esau was given the place of continuing a relationship with God like his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. But what did he do? He bartered that right, trading it for a momentary need. What Esau was really saying by this choice was, I'd rather have a bowl of soup than have a relationship with God. Without the insight we get from Hebrews, we would not know all that was going on inside of Esau's heart. Esau not only was immoral, but he was godless. He had no ethics or faith, no scruples or reverence. He had no regard for the good, the truthful, and the divine. He was totally worldly, totally secular, and totally profane. Christians are to be vigilant that no persons such as Esau contaminate Christ's body. That is why the writer of Hebrew warns us to see it. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Now there creates a struggle here when he says... Uh, the author says, let no one who is sexually immoral and no one who is godless like Esau contaminate the body. And yet we're set up as a church body, and I think rightfully so, to open our doors and say everybody's welcome. Please come in. If you don't know Jesus, we want to share with you the truth of who Jesus is. We want the lost. We want those who don't know Christ. We want those who have never said yes to Jesus to come into our doors so that they have the opportunity to hear the truth of how much God loves them, to hear the truth of this grace that God has for them, to hear the truth of what the Holy Spirit wants to give to them, to hear the truth of what Jesus did for them, how He cares for them, how He loves them, the truth of the God's undying and un and, and un unmerited love for each and every one of us. That's the truth. We want that to happen. But then why would the author of Hebrews says, don't let those people contaminate the body? We're talking about contaminations. We're not talking about them coming in. It's not like a drop of water that we're, we're 
a bottle of water and you put one drop of something nasty in it and it contaminates the whole thing. That's not what it's talking about. We're talking about influence here. The gossip, the bitter root of envy, the sexual immoral, the godless people. If those are the type of people that come in and they're unrepentant and they do not want to seek God's face and that they come in simply to destroy what God's doing, then we as Christ followers, because they will not be held accountable, will not listen to them. When someone comes up and wants to gossip to you or create a a root of bitter envy that's contaminated to everybody else around us and they try to influence you in your ear, you have the authority in Christ to say, no, I'm not listening to this. I'm not paying part of it. No more in the name of Jesus. When the sexually immoral are tickling our ears saying, this is okay, and this is okay, the line's really here, not here. No, the line's really here, not here. And we're, we're arguing over where the line of how far I can go to be close to being immoral without being immoral is. We've missed the total point. When those are the type of people that are tickling our ears and influencing us, we must stay away. When the godless are influencing us more than the Christ followers, we must stay away. And we are being influenced day in and day out on a constant, non-stop, 24-hour-a-day type of bombardment through the culture and through our media that tell us God is not the way, God is not the answer, and we're commanded in Scripture to stay away from that. Do not let that influence your heart and your life. It's deeper than just listening to Caleb in the car. Now, I'm not anti-Christian music in the car. I listen to it myself. But That's not the essence of this. Well, if I just listen to a little bit more K-Love, if I listen to a little bit more praise and worship, then then I'm okay. No, it's not. It's do not be influenced. How does the evil one work? We talked about that a moment ago. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy what God's doing here. The evil one uses people who are influenced by him to, to enter in to a godly group of people to try to subvert them. They may not do it intentionally in their hearts and mind, but the evil one's using them as a puppet. When we're being influenced more by the world, when we're being of the world instead of in the world, as as the Bible says, when we're reflecting more of the world than we are Christ, we need to ask ourselves some tough questions. Am I being influenced more by the evil one than I am of God? And if so, what is the evil one's intent and purposes other than simply destroy my life? He's destroying my influence, and through that, It's contagious to those that are around us. You've heard me say this before. This should be the absolute safest place on the planet in this very moment. And I'm not talking about safety from bad guys coming in, shooting us up. I'm not talking about that, although we're doing steps to to keep that from happening. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this should be the safest place on the earth because there's so much godly love, godly grace, holiness, and purity that's being prayed for, prayed over, prayed through, that we are moving toward a deeper relationship with God. And your baggage that you bring in can be laid at the foot of the cross and you can walk out clean and holy and pure and with the weight off of your shoulders if you simply want to. The reason that we have people up here at the end of every service to offer to pray with you is because, hey, you want to say yes to Jesus? We've got somebody that wants to help you do that. You want this garbage to be gone in your life? We've got somebody to help you pray through that. You want some healing? You need something in your heart, your emotions, your, your spiritual world, your physical ailments? We've got somebody that wants to help you in that very thing. We're not called to live life alone, and that's the way the evil one works also. He says that you can take care of this all on your own, that you don't need anybody else. And although that's, that, that's technically true, because I don't need everybody else for me to walk a holy and pure lifestyle because all I need is God with me. I do need you because God's made us for connection. He's made us for relationship. He's made us for family. We live life together and that's vital. That's important. And it's not this three hour time frame on Sunday morning. It is a lifestyle of living life together. And whether that's with this group of people or other group of people, it should be people that are going to encourage you, equip you, and point you to Jesus. And guess what? You don't have to agree with every theological belief they have. As long as it's not a heaven or hell issue, like if I get this wrong, I go to hell type of thing. If it's not that, then let's just agree to disagree. 
and let the Holy Spirit do His thing. Every one of us are going to get to heaven one day and realize that we're all off. Every one of us are. Let's just call it like it is. We so often fight over preferences but are not willing to take a hard stand on accountability. That's harsh. That's truth, though. Let's wrap this up. We're called to walk in holiness and purity, and the, the author tells us that it's partly our responsibility to strengthen within us the, the parts of us that are weak, but it also requires us in order to do that to acknowledge that something is weak. How often do we have a part of us that, that's weak and because it's weak and it hurts to strengthen it, we just give up and don't even worry about it any, any longer and we just become okay with the way that life is, become okay with the pain and the suffering and, just, and we don't deal with it anymore. But don't. We have to strengthen. We strengthen what is weak within us. It requires us to look in that spiritual mirror to ask the Holy Spirit of God to reveal Himself to us. Holy Spirit of God, I ask you in this moment to show me what is hampering my relationship with you. And then when He shows each of us those things, we have a choice to make. Either confess it as sin and get rid of it, or continue to just acknowledge it as something that's okay and I can deal with. That's our responsibility. We don't let the demons and the demonic and the people that are negative to chatter in our ears and attempt to take us away from Christ. We stand for what's holy and what's pure. And this divides families sometimes. And I'm sorry. And as much as it breaks my heart, it breaks God's heart even more when families split but Jesus, he called it, didn't he? He said, following me, it's going to put brother against father, mother against daughter, father against son. Families are going to be split because somebody in the family says yes. And we don't do it in anger, in animosity, in hatred, and trying to tear people down. It has to be done in love. Again, let this sink in. You are the one that's accountable for your actions, for your words, not for what they receive. You're accountable to God for speaking truth in love. <laughs> yeah. That's what we are accountable for. If the other person doesn't hear it, don't give up. Try again. Wait a little longer. Truth in love. They don't hear it, tell them again a little later. Truth in love. But ultimately, you're accountable for the in love and the truth aspect of it. See, I do kind of wish we could go back and, and just talk about the holiness of God some more because God's holy, yeah, and the throne is beautiful and you know, train of his robe filling the whole place and the glitter and the bang and all the beautiful things that must be there and the, the sounds, yes, that's going to be awesome. This whole living it out stuff, dude, this is hard. This is hard, this living it out. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's hard. So let's just acknowledge it. We'll call it like it is. It's hard. That doesn't mean I have to stop. That doesn't mean I'm supposed to stop. I still walk on. And when I'm weak, please help me. Come get under me and help lift me up. And when you're weak, let us do that together. Hold each other up. But you got to acknowledge it. You got to say it. You got to call it out. We're going to pray. And, and just conclude our service with prayer before we do everything else that we do at the end. I'm going to ask my prayer team to come up in just a moment. Guys, if you need prayer today, if you need prayer because you want to say yes to Jesus, come up and pray with somebody. If you need prayer because 
you're in the pits and you just need somebody to pray God's blessings over you, come up. You got some physical ailments, emotional ailments, spiritual ailments. You need some healing. Come up so somebody can pray. And if you're just so out of sorts coming up front, you don't want to do that, then when this thing's over, find somebody and pray. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in prayer. And it's mystical. We don't understand it. But we can't deny it because we see it. So let's walk in holiness. Let's walk in purity. Let's walk in the more. Let's chase after Him. Chase after Him. And when you stumble and fall, say, I've stumbled and fallen. I'm going to get up and I'm going to chase a little bit more. My knees may be skin up because I've fallen three times, but guess what? I'm going to run a little bit more. Uh Uh-oh, I skinned my elbow, but guess what? I'm going to keep chasing after him. But he's the big daddy who stands behind me. I'm the little kid, six years old. I'm facing that big bully who's 10 years old and twice the size of me. I feel like I'm all alone and I want to run. And I want to run because he's scary and he's mean and he hurts. But I say no more. This is the day where I draw the line and say, say no more, evil one. No more. And I bow up to him. And his eyes get giant. And he turns around and runs away. And I think for a moment, wow, did I do that? And then I turn behind me and I see my gigantic daddy king. And that bully, that evil one, saw my gigantic dead king through me and through you. Do not be fearful. Be strong and courageous. Find out more about First Baptist Church Gold Breeze at F.